Thanks for praying for us, uh, Jim. Also, there's no children's church today, so I won't be sending anybody down for children's church. Um, I also want to say, uh, in response to um, Serena and Stephanie, um, continue to ask our Asian American brothers and sisters about their story, even when it's not AAPI month. Um, And we want City Hope to be a place where you see that the Lord invites you to weave your story into the grand story that the Lord is telling um, through all peoples, tribes, and nations. And so I just want to say that before we start our sermon. And um, yeah, I, my name's Hunter. Uh, if you didn't catch that at the beginning, if you're watching online, you've never met me before. I'm the uh, pastoral resident here, um, and we're really glad you're here. I'm going to pray before we begin, and then we're going to dive into the text. Heavenly Father, um, you are our Father. It is a wonderful thing that we can call you that and come to you. Um, We pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done, that you would provide for us all we need, that uh, this place would look a little bit like heaven today. Um, Would you uh, deliver us from the evil one, and would you remind us that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, if this is your first time hearing... uh, a sermon in this sermon series called Scale the Mountain. Um, We're going through the Psalms, worshiping God from the songs of his people. And I just want to remind you that SCALE is an acronym. It stands for Story, Christ, Affections, Love, and Exaltation. Um, These are the five tools in our toolkit for scaling the mountain of the Psalms. And you can take these with you to help you understand and internalize and love the Psalms even better in your own time with the Lord. And so I just wanted to remind us of that before we dive into God's Word. Um, Our text today is from Psalm 2, so let's read that right now. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. I want to begin the sermon with a question. Who rules us? That's the question. Who rules us? So I want to ask this question corporately and then individually. Corporately, who rules us? Is it Joe Biden, our president? Uh, Or is it Dan Reidenauer, the Muncie mayor? I don't think any of us uh, are ruled by Dan Reidenauer or any part of the government. Or is it the culture? Are we completely at the whims of our culture and um, do we Go with the spirit of the age dominating the way we live our lives. Or is it Josh Hollowell, right? He's not here right now. I think one of the purposes of sabbatical is that we would learn that Josh is not our captain, but Christ is our captain. Or is it the elders? Do we see them as our main captain and guide through the world? 
And I want to ask this to you individually. Who is your ruler? Are you dominated by your work or your job or your hobbies or even your family? Does your past haunt you? Do you feel like something you did or things you did is keeping you down? There are things in your past life that you can't shake, like a ghost that haunts you and will not go away. Is there shame from that? Or are you your own individual? You are your own Lord, your own autonomous self who makes your own choices, discovering who you are, and nothing and nobody can tell you otherwise. I think if we're honest with ourselves, something has to rule our life. Anytime that uh, there has been an opportunity or a chance to have no ruler, seek total anarchy on an individual or corporate level, it seems like the world goes into chaos. But something has to be the ruler. Um, this is an idea called lordship. Lordship. This is a concept that is all over the place in life, but we don't always have the word for it. John Frame gives us three attributes of lordship, control, authority, and presence. I'll say those again. Lordship is made up of control, authority, and presence. Um, And I want to propose this about lordship that we see here in Psalm 2. God's son king reigns, he is lord, over the raging nations and is a refuge for his people. Let me repeat that one more time. This is about lordship. Remember, God's son king reigns over the raging nations and is a refuge for his people. This is kind of a summary of this text, and um, this is going to be the way we walk through the text today. But I think it's important that we start with the son king, the king who is both a son and a ruler. Who is this person? Who is the Son King? If you're thinking Jesus, you are correct, and that's a good thing. But we can't get there too quickly because the original audience of this text, they knew there was a King coming, but they didn't know who Jesus was yet. And so it's going to take a little work, but I want us to feel why it is so important that Jesus is the Son King that Psalm 2 is talking about. First, let's look at this idea of the sun. So there's, a, there's this idea in our culture that God revealed himself as father to us when Jesus said the Lord's Prayer. He said, our father in heaven. Um, this is a pretty popular belief in American culture, but this isn't true. In Exodus 4, the Lord says this. I think that text is, yes. Then you should, so this is before the 10 plagues come. Uh, God is talking to Moses, and he says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Oh, okay. So, God has Israel as his firstborn son in the Old Testament. That is in the mind of the readers of this psalm. As for the king, in the very beginning, God created man to tend to the garden, and he uses the word to exercise dominion over all things. In Genesis 1.26, God says... Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over all the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That word dominion is a ruling word. That's a word about ruling. Mankind was originally created to be God's royal stewards of the garden, of the earth, and even to love each other as co-reigners over the earth. 
co-reigners, is that a word? That's what, that's what mankind's original intention is, and I think it is our intention today. That's why lordship is so important to us today and why we need someone to rule over us. Notice in God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, he says this, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and what? Kings will come from you. The idea of royalty and sonship applies to God's people all in the Old Testament. It's not this new thing that God is doing, but it is something that has always been built into us as people. I think this is why in our sin, we often corrupt the idea of lordship and strive to take power and authority from people when it's not um, our job to do that. We've always been kings and queens, every single one of us, always. But the fall corrupted this, and we wasted our dominion raging against God. And I would say, in a sense, the rest of the Old Testament is about the good deeds and failures of God's kings, right? After you get through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's leading up to the kings, and then the kings just flop. They just flop. And uh, it's interesting, when we get to David, even though he flops too, it feels like we've kind of arrived, right? He is God's chosen king. He's the best king out of all the kings. Um, let's, let's read 2 Samuel 7. We're going to read a passage from 2 Samuel 7 that talks about David as a son and a king, right? These two themes merging together into one person, okay? 2 Samuel 7, we're going to read verses 8 through 16. Now, this may seem like a lot, but uh, we're going to spend some time here because it is very important for understanding the whole scope of the Bible, this, this passage. This is the Lord giving words to Nathan the prophet to speak to David. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth." And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When you're, now listen up, listen up. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I shall, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him what a father and he shall be to me a son. See, in David and his descendants, the idea of royalty in sonship comes to its full fruition. In one person, representing Israel. And, and he continues, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You see these two themes, sonship and kingship coming together. One person, and that person is David's son. And we see that in Solomon a little bit, but Solomon flops too. You know, you notice all the kings just keep getting worse and worse. 
But when I read Psalm 2, I just can't help but think Jesus. Right? You just can't help it. You see all the wonderful things that Jesus did and the promises in the New Testament. But in the original context of this verse, all the people knew was that this was David's descendant who was going to do these things. He's going to be king, and he's going to be God's son who represents God's people all in one thing. Right? Remember, think back to our S in scale story. This psalm does not exist on its own. But it pulls on all these images and all these themes from the Old Testament and even propels them into the New Testament. This is a very, very important psalm that's quoted all over the place. And what happens next after Psalm 2? You get all these Psalms of David. There's like 40 of them. This is about David's descendant. David is painted as the deliverer, the, the Messiah figure in the Bible whose children would deliver God's people. You would think that David's line, immediate line, is the final son king, right? Solomon would have accomplished it all, but he doesn't. They, they leave Psalm 2 wanting, wanting more, right? Can you, can you just imagine the hearers of this? It's like, yes, the king is finally coming. Oh my gosh, they screwed up again and again and again. It's the story of humanity screwing up over and over. In fact, they act more like the kings of the earth in verses 2 and 3, who just want to rebel against the Lord. Just think of all the horrible things that David and his children did. And if you think back to Psalm 1, that's the ideal person, and yet none of David's descendants were like that. But there is one man who was like that, who was a descendant of David, and that's Christ. He's, he's actually related to David through his father, and he is the true Davidic descendant. I want you guys to feel the weight of this, because I, I think the idea that Christ is God's son can become really commonplace to us. But when Christ stepped on the scene, this was earth-shattering. This was the man that people were waiting for for literally thousands of years who would deliver his people. Thousands of years. We get the benefit of hindsight as we see the work of Christ, but they were experiencing Christ, and he wasn't exactly all they expected him to be. He was gentle and lowly. He was born in a manger. But do you know what John 3, in the very famous verse, John 3, 16, calls David, for God so, calls, calls Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. His only son. That, that old translations get this idea of only begotten son because that, that word is, is referencing Psalm 2. Only begotten son. Today I have begotten you. Right? Jesus he is God's only begotten Son. He is the fullest sense of Psalm 2 embodied in a person. He's both king and son. And I want you guys to feel the weight of this. We can't ever let this become common to us. Christ is the anticipated Messiah from the beginning of time. From the beginning of time, he's the perfect man. He is all of God's people encapsulated into one man, what we ought to be when we fail he is God's son king who rules and reigns with dominion perfectly. And he's God's only son from eternity past. He is eternally begotten of the Father. And he's the resurrected king. His kingship can never end. I want to say Psalm 2 is quoted all over the New Testament. 
All over the New Testament it's quoted. Psalm 2 is quoted in Hebrews to show that Jesus is greater than any earthly ruler in all the world, even angels. He's greater than even angels because the nations are his heritage. He's even greater than the angels. Psalm 2 is alluded to in Mark 1 when the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. The Father tells him, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's the well-pleased Son of God. It's quoted multiple times in Acts to show that the Son King is risen and reigning right now to bring salvation to his people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, Jew and Gentile alike. When Psalm 2 is used in Revelation, it is shown uh, that Jesus is the one who rules the nations with the rod of iron. Jesus is God's Son King, and the whole world is his. Don't miss this, right? He sits on God's holy hill, and the nations are his heritage. The ends of the earth are his possession. They're his. Everything in the cosmos is governed by King Jesus. But we've talked about who this king is. The question still stands right at the beginning of the psalm. Why do the nations rage? Why do they rage? Why do they plot in vain? I think it's because they don't know who the Son King is. They don't know who the Lord is. They don't know who rules their life. Let's look at verses 5 in 6 again. Notice how it says, the thing that terrifies them, just the fact that God has set up his king on the holy hill should be what terrifies the nations. And yet, that's not what the people say. That's not what the nations say. They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Does that sound familiar to you guys? It's because people say things like this all the time, all the time. In our culture, people say things like, ah, it is time to throw off the shackles of Christianity and start living my life, baby. Mm. Mm. Religion's holding me down. I have, a, I have a job. I have a family. School. Oh, I have too many things to do. Oh. We say things like this all the time. It's so commonplace. We rebel against God. I think we even get really sophisticated about it. This is a quote from Bill Gates. He said, just in terms of allocation of time resources, religion's just not that efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on Sunday morning. As if religion is about efficiency. But that's, that's his idol. And it's more subtle, right? It's like, ah, I could get more, I could just get more done, right? I could just get more done. There's just a lot better to do. It restricts me too much. They're cords. They hold me down. And I think in the original context, this was about violence against God's people. Oppressors would come and try to tear down Israel and, and remove God's anointed king. This is so many of the violent stories we read in the Old Testament are about nations coming against nations to conspire against God's people. I think the psalm was written to give God's people hope in him and in his anointed, even when the nations rage against them. That's not our context right now, right? We don't live in a society where God's people are oppressed much on the basis of being Christian. It exists, it exists, but on the basis of being a Christian, um, we just don't experience that, that kind of oppression. But the heart of this is still here in our culture, and I think this is the heart. The nations just don't want to submit to God. They don't want to submit to God. And, and, and ultimately, for the ungodly nations, 
uh, they feel like the burden of worshiping God is just too big. And uh, sometimes we think about the nations and we think all the nations except our own, um, but we are one of those nations too. Uh, just think of all the ways we rebel against God's law here in Muncie. Think of all the evil landlords who swindle their people out of their money and keep residents impoverished. It doesn't take long working with the Mercy team to see that this happens all the time. Think of how large-scale abuse and neglect preys on the most underserved children. I, I mean, think of the party culture at Ball State, right? It's like people openly, openly sinning and disregarding God's law. Uh, I was telling um, some folks before the service that I accidentally went to a party at Ball State. How do you do that? How do you accidentally go to a party? But that, that's the culture we live in. We are actively rebelling against God's law. But it's not just those people out there. All of us do. All people rebel against the Lord. Sometimes we do it consciously. Sometimes we unconsciously follow our idols because it's just easier. It's just easier. Religion feels like too much of a burden. I would rather do what I want, establish my own kingship on this earth. Think back to that Bill Gates quote. Maybe it's the idol of efficiency, working as many hours as possible to get the most money possible and get the most work done. Never resting, never resting in the Lord. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe we are just lazy and we idolize our me time and our comfort time. And, you know, it's just too much serving the Lord. I'd, I'd rather have my me time. We seek to put ourselves in the position of the anointed all the time, to compete against the Lord and His will and His work. And how does the Lord respond to our feeble attempts to set up a king and our idols, our little lords? We set up little lords all the time. How, how does He respond? The Lord laughs. He laughs. It's silly because He's already set up His king. He's already there. Christ reigns at this very moment and will reign into eternity. So I want to ask the question that I asked again. Uh, I want to ask again the question that I asked at the beginning of the service. What has control, power, and authority over us? Is there something that we are not submitting to that is not to God through His law? I just want to reflect on that a little bit because what I've noticed is that the more and more the Lord sanctifies us, the more and more our little lords that we set up get revealed, and we have to submit those to Him and keep coming back to Him. Our hearts are sinful, and uh, that's the beauty of sanctification, because whenever we stray, the Lord will draw us back. He'll draw us back. But if we just end here talking about how much we fall short, we miss the point of the psalm, because the psalm ends in a blessing. Right? Psalm 1 begins with a blessing. Psalm 2 ends with a blessing. We've talked about the reign of God's Son King. It's Christ. He lasts forever and He reigns forever. The rage of the nations. Now we're going to end with the refuge of God. God is our refuge. This is where the hope for the nations lie. And I also I, I want to point out it's the nations. It's not just like the United States or Israel at one point in time. It's the nations get this hope. In fact, the very same evil kings that are rebelling against God, they're the ones who get the offer of salvation. That's where refuge is found for the whole 
earth. This is going to be a theme that comes up over and over and over again in the book of Psalms, that the nations get God's blessing. But there's only two options. You can either rage against the Lord, or verse 12 tells us, kiss the Son. Kiss the Son is the other option. You can either submit to the lordship and leadership of Christ or perish in the way. These are the two options. They're the two options presented throughout the whole Bible. Uh, I've found it is quite commonplace for Christians to say things like this. They'll say, I believed in Jesus once, but I didn't make him lord of my life until this point in time in my life. I, I, wanna, I don't want to bash that thing that people say because I, I think is true and that is a sign of a changed heart. I'm really glad people say things and believe that. But I want to reframe the way we think about that phrase a little bit. Uh, Christ is Lord, and by submitting to Him in faith, we find a refuge in Him. We can't make Him Lord of our life because He already is Lord of our life. Rather, we submit to His Lordship and find a refuge in Him. And the psalm ends with a blessing. I, I want to remind us again one more time, because we get this idea that the God of the Old Testament is a big meanie, and the God of the New Testament is so nice and soft, but no, no, you get them both. You get both. You get the punishment and the blessing in one place. There's a blessing. For one, the refuge comes from those very raging nations that were raging against them. If you're here and you are feeling the pain of a raging nation against you, there's actually a blessing here for you in Christ. God is your refuge. He's your refuge. But you also get a refuge from death, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, what? Shall not perish, but have eternal life. The only begotten son, he doesn't just save us from the nations, but he saves us from the worst enemy of all, the great equalizer of all people and of all people's death, right? Not only do individuals die, whole nations die off. There are thousands of places that have existed that don't exist anymore. Whole people groups that just like die. But Christ has defeated that. We get eternal life in him. Right? God so loved the world, the whole world. And of course, John tells us that this is eternal life, that we may know the Father in Jesus Christ whom he sent. That's where eternal life is found. Our refuge is in the anointed king. Brothers and sisters, we get Christ in all he has. That's where our refuge is. I just want to pause and think, isn't that wonderful? We get Christ, the anticipated Messiah from the very beginning, right after the fall, right? Who's going to crush the head of the serpent but the seed of the woman? David's son, that's Jesus. We get him, and he's our friend. He's closer than a brother, I, my own brother is very close to me. I'm very close to my brother. He's closer than that. He's closer to me than Ashlyn is, and she's my wife, right? He's more precious. It's not just you or me. We have brothers and sisters all around the world who are just as close, just as close. This whole world out there with the people that God has chosen for himself to find their refuge in him. And I do want to say this, Jesus is the only begotten son, but he's not the only son of God. I, I'm not saying anything, you know, blasphemous or anything like that. He's the only begotten son, but through him, we become sons and daughters of the king as well. 
Uh, can we turn to Revelation 2, that verse up there? The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. This is Jesus speaking about the one who conquers. That's us. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is, this is amazing. John, in Revelation, is applying the words of Psalm 2 through the mouth of Jesus to the church, to us. Now, we don't become Christ. I mentioned this last week. We don't become gods, but we rule with Christ. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we get every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He also tells us elsewhere that we even judge angels. That's crazy. But we are the Father's adopted children. All people who trust in Christ in faith are God's adopted child. This is amazing and in, in mind-blowing, right? We, we prayed earlier, our Father in heaven. We can actually pray that because the Son King has made us brothers and sisters with Christ. It's amazing. It's so, so amazing that we are actually God's children. And with that, the psalm ends with a blessing, just like Psalm 1 begins with a blessing. If you want to know what the blessed life is, where to find your refuge, see what's in between Psalm 1 and 2, right? That's where the blessed life is. All the rest of the psalms are going to focus on the themes that come up in this verse and expound on them in more richness and detail than what we've already studied. But this is the introduction. We're done. We're done with the introduction. Psalm 1 and 2 serve as an introduction to the psalms. I want to end with this. Uh, I was talking to a classmate this week about Psalm 2, and he had just a, a wonderful insight. Um, our world, and, and I think the posture of our heart we take naturally in our sin, is that we want to throw off the chains, throw off the bonds of Christ, live our own lives, right? Rage against God and His anointed. That's our natural inclination in our sin. But the call of Christ to His people is to take up bonds, but these bonds are not the chains of human slavery, nor are they to the powers and the principalities of this world. But we are called to be slaves to righteousness because we have been freed from all the evils of this world. We can run to Christ, who is both our king and he is the son of God. And he's closer than a brother because he's made us sons of God as well. We submit all our lives to Christ in righteousness that's where true freedom comes, not, not from rebelling against him or rebelling against his law, but in Christ. So I want to ask the question one more time. Who is our ruler? Who has control? Who has authority? And who has a power in our lives corporately and as individuals? I want to remind you, God's son king reigns over the raging nations and is a refuge for his people. He reigns, even as the nations rage. And we're going to go out after service today into the raging nation. There's going to be wickedness and people rebelling against God's law and our own hearts wanting to rebel all the time. But Christ reigns. And remember, if you don't see Christ in the Psalms, you miss the whole thing. You miss the whole thing. That's the C in scale. That's what we're talking about. In all power, control, and authority belong to Him. He's Lord. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, you have made your Son Lord over all creation. He owns and controls all things. He is King and Lord. Thank you that he ransomed us from our sins so that we can know him. Uh, Would you draw us nearer to you in relationship into each other in love? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before Serena sings, I mentioned last week we're going to end all our times in God's Word together with a corporate reading of the text. So there are uh, 12 verses here. We're not going to read all 12. We're going to start in verse 7 and read to the end of Psalm 2. So why don't you all stand? We're going to read Psalm 2 together. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You may 